people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily and I'm Rebecca and today we have some very spooky churches, plural, for you <laughs> and we also have a lot of crows, weirdly, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> <laughs> are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with Once Upon a Broken Heart Ooh. by Stephanie Garber. This came out in 2021 and is actually a spin-off to Garber's trilogy Caraval. I've not read Caraval um, but when I heard about the plot of this I knew it was right up my street and because it's a spin-off you can read it without having mm. read Caraval. I gather that Once Upon a Broken Heart like alludes to things that happen in that series, but they are separate and I didn't have any issues with like world building or any of that kind of thing. Nice. Um, so before I tell you more about Once Upon a Broken Heart, I want to read the little like prelude bit. Mm-hmm. It is titled Warnings and Signs. Ooh. <clears throat> We're both going to be loving a prelude today. Oh, nice. Oh, also, the dedication is for anyone who has ever made a bad decision because of a broken heart. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Hello! <laughs> okay, so this is warnings and signs. Oh, sorry, I need to interrupt you. Look at the moon. Oh, I can't, I can't see Can it. you not see it? It's right in the kitchen window. Oh, the light is shining on it. Oh. Oh, I see it now. It's very It's really bright. pretty. Anyway, it carry is. on. <laughs> The bell hanging outside the curiosity shop knew the human was trouble from the way he moved through the door. Bells have excellent hearing, but this little chime didn't need any particular skill to catch the crude jangle of the gaudy pocket watch chain at this young man's hip, or the rough scrape of his boots as he attempted a swagger, but only succeeded in scuffing the floor of Maximilian's oddities, curiosities and whimsies. This young man was going to ruin the girl that worked inside the shop. The bell had tried to warn her. A full two seconds before the boy opened the door, the bell rang its clapper. Unlike most humans, this shop girl had grown up around oddities, and the bell had long suspected that she was a curiosity as well, though it couldn't figure out exactly what sort. The girl knew that many objects were more than they appeared, and that bells possessed a sixth sense that humans lacked. Unfortunately, this girl, who believed in hope, in fairy tales, and love at first sight, often misinterpreted the bell's chimes. Today the bell was fairly certain that she had heard its cautionary ring. But, from the way her voice affected an excited edge as she spoke to the young man, it seemed as if the girl had taken the bell's early toll as a serendipitous sign instead of as a warning. Oh, I love that. I know. <laughs> I love when things go from the point of view of inanimate objects. Same. Did we not? I feel like we had a writing challenge at uni that was like something akin to that. Did like, we? Maybe it was your master's. I don't know. If maybe I not that. like not necessarily writing from the point of view of inanimate objects, but I feel like there was a whole three or four weeks on inanimate objects and writing about them. Hmm. Anyway, I must have blanked that out. <laughs> I don't blame you. It was it was a time. <laughs> so yeah, I just thought that was a nice taste of like the tone of mm. this book, which is very nice and lyrical, and it feels like a fairy tale, which is what this book is trying to emulate. I'm actually going to talk more about that later 
And yeah, spoiler alert, more fairy tales for me <laughs> this week. Emily um, loves a fairy tale. I do. Um, so onto the premise of this book. Essentially, our main character, Evangeline Fox, which is a great name. That is wonderful. <laughs> is in love with a man called Luke. But the day they decide to tell their families they are in love, Luke and Evangeline's stepsister, Marisol, announce their engagement. So heartbroken, Evangeline goes to the Prince of Hearts, the kind of god, to make a deal. And in exchange for three kisses, he will stop the wedding. He gets to choose the who's and when's of the kisses that she must give. And of course, from that comes lots of chaos and danger and kissing and biting. (laughs) It's a good time. This is one of those moments where I wish that we'd recorded video because I can't (laughs) put my face into words right now. (laughs) But I love it. I'm so here for it. I'm sure when I did a TikTok on this, I said, there's as many bites as there is kisses. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I want to read out a little bit of exposition, but it's very beautiful Mm -hmm. exposition. And this just kind of explains who the Prince of Hearts is. It's right at the beginning of the book when Evangeline has searched out this secret temple where you're meant to go to pray to this fate. Evangeline's heart raced as she took her first step. During her search for the missing door, she'd read that the Prince of Hearts' church held a different aroma for everyone who visited. It was supposed to smell like a person's greatest heartbreak. But as Evangeline entered the cool cathedral, the air did not remind her of Luke. There were no hints of suede or vetiver. The dim mouth of the church was slightly sweet and metallic. Apples and blood. Goose flesh covered her arms. This was not reminiscent of the boy she loved. The account she'd read must have been wrong. But she didn't turn around. She knew fates weren't saints or saviours, although she hoped that the Prince of Hearts was more feeling than the others. Her steps took her deeper inside the cathedral. Everything was shockingly white. White carpets, white candles, white prayer pews of white oak, white aspen and flaky white birch. Evangeline passed row after row of mismatched white benches. They might have been handsome once, but now many had missing legs, while others had mutilated cushions or benches that had been broken in half. Broken, broken, broken. No wonder the door hadn't wanted to let her enter. Perhaps this church wasn't sinister, it was sad. A rough rip shattered the church's silence. Evangeline spun around and choked back a gasp. Several rows behind her, in a shadowed corner, a young man appeared to be in mourning or performing some act of penance. Wild locks of golden hair swung across his face as his head bowed and his fingers tore at the sleeves of his burgundy top coat. Her heart felt a pang as she watched him. She was tempted to ask if he needed help, but he'd probably chosen the corner to go unnoticed, and she didn't have much time left. There were no clocks inside the church, but Evangeline swore she heard the tick of a second hand, working at erasing the precious minutes she had until Luke's wedding. She hurried down the nave to the apse, where the fractured rows of benches ceased and a gleaming marble dais rose before her. The platform was pristine, lit by a wall of beeswax candles and surrounded by four fluted columns, guarding a larger-than-life statue of the fated Prince of Hearts. The back of her neck prickled. Evangeline knew what he was supposed to look like. 
Decks of Destiny, which used fated images to tell fortunes, had recently become a popular item in her father's curiosity shop. The Prince of Hearts' card represented unrequited love, and it always depicted the fate as tragically handsome, with vivid blue eyes crying tears that matched the blood forever staining the corner of his sulky mouth. There were no bloody tears on this glowing statue, but its face did possess a ruthless kind of beauty, the sort Evangeline would have expected from a demigod that had the ability to kill with his kiss. The prince's marble lips twisted into a perfect smirk that should have looked cold and hard and sharp, but there was a hint of softness to his slightly fuller lower lip. It pouted out like a deadly invitation. According to the myths, the Prince of Hearts was not capable of love because his heart had stopped beating long ago. Only one person could make it work again, his one true love. They said his kiss was fatal to all but her, his only weakness, and as he'd sought her, he'd left a trail of corpses. Evangeline couldn't imagine a more tragic existence. If one fate were to have sympathy for her situation, it would be the Prince of Hearts. Her gaze found his elegant marble fingers clasping a dagger the size of her forearm. The blade pointed down toward a stone offering basin balanced on a burner, just above a low circle of dancing white flames. The words blood for a prayer were carved into its side. Evangeline took a deep breath. This was what she'd come here for. She pressed her finger to the tip of the blade. Sharp marble pierced her skin, and drop after drop of blood fell, sizzling and hissing, filling the air with more metal and sweet. A part of her hoped this tithe might conjure up some sort of magical display, that the statue would come to life or the Prince of Hearts' voice would fill the church, but nothing moved save for the flames on the walls of the candles. She couldn't even hear the anguished young man in the back of the church. It was just she in the statue. Ooh. <laughs> I love um, the line, um, what if the church wasn't sinister? It was just sad. Yeah. Sad little church. <laughs> I don't know what it is about that like curse. It just like scratches the itch I have for something that's like incredibly sort of hopeless romantic but also very dark. Mm. I also really like the setting of the temple, like everything being white. I feel like there's some kind of symbolism there, but I've not worked out what it is yet. <laughs> yeah, um, some sort of pureness. Yeah. I don't know. Bleak. Mm. Unspoiled. Untouched. Yeah. I don't know. I'm it gives me, do you know what the curse reminds me of? Pushing daisies. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's what I thought of as well. <laughs> that was such a good show. <laughs> it was a good show. I'm sad that got cancelled. Okay, so I obviously have to show Evangeline's first interaction with the Prince of Hearts. He's called Jax because he's like a fan favourite character from the Caraval series, I gather. And he is my favourite character in the book. So I'm going to jump ahead a few pages in the same scene. Evangeline tells the statue her story about Luke and wanting the wedding to be stopped. And then this is what happens. Cool. So I'm here begging for your help. The wedding is today and I need you to stop it. Evangeline opened her eyes. The lifeless statue hadn't changed. She knew statues didn't generally move, yet she couldn't help but think that it should have done something. Shifted or spoken or moved its marble eyes. 
Please, I know you understand heartbreak. Stop look from marrying Marisol. Save my heart from breaking again. Now, that was a pathetic speech. Two slow claps followed the indolent voice, which sounded just a few feet away. Evangeline spun around, all the blood straining from her face. She didn't expect to see him, the young man who'd been tearing his clothes in the back of the church. Although it was difficult to believe this was the same person. She'd thought that boy was in agony, but he must have ripped away his pain along with the sleeves of his jacket, which now hung in tatters over a striped black and white shirt that was only halfway tucked into his breeches. He sat on the dais steps, lazily leaning against one of the pillars with his long, lean legs stretched out before him. His hair was golden and messy, his two bright blue eyes were bloodshot, and his mouth twitched at the corner as if he didn't enjoy much, but he found pleasure in the brief bit of pain he just inflicted upon her. He looked bored and rich and cruel. Would you like me to stand up and turn around so that you can take in the rest of me? He taunted. The colour instantly returned to Evangeline's cheeks. We're in a church. What does that have to do with anything? In one elegant move, the young man reached into the inner pocket of his ripped burgundy coat, pulled out a pure white apple and took one bite. Dark red juice dripped from the fruit to his long, pale fingers and in onto the pristine marble steps. Don't do that! Evangeline hadn't meant to yell. Although she wasn't shy with strangers, she genuinely avoided quarrelling with them. But she couldn't seem to help it with this crass young man. You're being disrespectful. And you're praying to an immortal who kills every girl he kisses. You really think he deserves any reverence? The awful young man punctuated his words with another wide bite of his apple. She tried to ignore him. She really did. But it was like some terrible magic had taken hold of her. Rather than marching off, Evangeline imagined the stranger taking her lips instead of his snack and kissing her with his fruit-sweet mouth until she died in his arms. No, it couldn't be. You're staring again, he purred. Evangeline immediately looked away, turning back to the marble carving. Minutes ago, its lips alone had made her heart race, but now it just seemed like an ordinary statue, lifeless compared to this vicious young man. Personally, I think I'm far more handsome. Suddenly, the young man stood right beside her. Butterflies fluttered to life inside of Evangeline's stomach. Scared ones, all frantic wings and two fast beats, warning her to get out of there, to run, to flee. But she couldn't look away. This close, he was undeniably attractive and taller than she'd realised. He gave her a real smile, revealing a pair of dimples that briefly made him look more angel than devil. But she imagined even angels would need to beware of him. She could picture him flashing those deceptive dimples as he tricked an angel into losing its wings just so he could play with the feathers. It's you, she whispered. You're the Prince of Hearts. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> It's amazing how every there's like two types of book boy, right? And this mm-hmm. is one of them. Yeah. Like don't but like still good though. I know. It's good every you know, time. You know that way you're reading it and I'm like, oh this is so like cliche, YA and I'm like, but I'm still he's charming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like see, I never like that type of book boy. Yeah. So I'm like, oh he bugs me, but I would still read on. I'd still be like, I need to know what happens to this yeah. pair of them though. Speaking of book boys. 
there's a line in the Infernal Devices series about Will Herondale having the face of a bad angel and eyes like the night sky in hell, and that is the vibe yeah. that I get with Jax. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love Jax. Love his curse. I love his aesthetic. <laughs> He's serving Luke Hemmings. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh that I. I wonder if this is in my notes. I've not looked at these notes in a while, but. <laughs> Someone messaged Stephanie Garber on Instagram and said, do you picture Luke Hemmings as Jax? Because I do. And she was like, yep. (laughs) (laughs) So there we go. Yeah, I was getting that. It was when she... But honestly, it was the line, bored and rich and cruel. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah. He does have that vibe. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I also like how he's always eating apples. (laughs) Um, This one was white. He has a gold one at some point. I think he has a black one. It's, he just always has like mystical apples. It's like, like the ch- cowboy chewing his straw. <laughs> yeah, but he has a funky apple. <laughs> <laughs> what is also quite fun about Jax is he has quite like a taunting personality. You can kind of see that in this passage. I just wanted to read out a really short interaction from much later in the book, but it's not spoiling anything. And it also refers back to the little preludes that I read earlier. Mm. Fine. Luke was there for me when my father died. This was why you fell in love with him. No, I think I loved him before that. She was tempted to say that she loved him the first time she saw him, but Jax would definitely mock her for that. At first, I thought he was handsome. I still remember... The bell outside the shop door rang a full two seconds before the first time he walked inside, as if it too thought he was special. Or it was trying to warn you away from him, Jax groaned. <laughs> <laughs> I just like that interaction. I like that you have this very like dreamy character in Evangeline and she's not she's not like naive because she is like definitely clever, mm-hmm. but she does like want life to be like a story. Like she has the hopeless romantic yeah, Sides she she her. knows better, and yet she persists. Yeah, exactly. And then it's contrasted with Jax, who is essentially a god, who is just so over it. Mm. Like, he's just like, oh, I hate this. <laughs> Stop talking shite. Yeah. And whether that's because he is, like, forever heartbroken or not is kind of to be argued. I, I feel like at the end of this book, you still don't know him enough. Like, I don't know if it's, like, a shtick. Or if he genuinely, like... Is over it. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just like their contrasting personalities in this little moment. Shows that quite well, I thought. Nice. But on the topic of dreamy things, my absolute favourite thing about this book is the fairy tale language. Obviously the title Once Upon a Broken Heart is a really good example of it. But there's also so many, like, happily ever after lines, or, like, true love's kiss, or, like... Even the imagery of Jax's apples and mm. Evangeline has rose gold hair, which is very like whimsical. Yeah. Um, and people are always like, what's that colour? And <laughs> she's like, rose gold. <laughs> <laughs> is that like when people say strawberry blonde, but they're actually ginger? Yeah, but her, her hair is actually rose gold. <laughs> like it's like shiny and like, like it's like pink. Yeah. It's cute. And yeah, I just like this little bit about the buildings in the Magnificent North, which is where most of this book is set, which... It's just a brilliant name. Yeah, that is Magnificent pretty. Magnificent North. That's pretty it. good. And yeah, this also includes a bit of that fairy tale like dialogue as well. Evangeline's mother once told her that there were five different types of castles in the North. The Fortress Castle, the Enchanted Castle, the Haunted Castle, 
the ruined castle and the storybook castle. Evangeline had yet to see all the different types of castles, but she immediately thought the word storybook castle as she stepped out of Jax's carriage and took in the lovely structure before her. Made of sparkling purple bricks, gabled blue roofs and pink-lined windows with golden light blazing through, Evangeline imagined this was the place where fairy tales were formed. Then she immediately hoped she was wrong, given that Jax would only ruin whatever was inside. Did you bring me here to destroy someone's happily ever after? she asked. Jax glared at the castle, eyes like daggers, as he started down the cobbled path. You'll not find any happy endings here. The matriarch of House Fortuna lives inside these ridiculous walls. She likes to pretend she's a loving storybook grandmother, but she's about as sweet as poison. If you want to get through this visit alive, when you meet the matriarch, you'll kiss her cheek or hand as quickly as possible. Why? Evangeline asked. What do you want from her? Jax gave her a look that said he couldn't believe she actually thought he would answer. <laughs> I am so intrigued by this character. <laughs> <laughs> what was she called? What was her full title? The like the lady of the yeah. house. The matriarch of House Fortuna. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a house. Yeah. I get that she's bad, but I don't care. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. She's about as sweet as poison. poison. <laughs> what an icon. It's <laughs> got like a purple shiny castle, pink yeah. windows. I can't tell you what is inside her house because of spoilers, but it's not what you expect. <laughs> Amazing, that's the way you mean. So yeah, it's just so fun. Um, and in the same vein, I love that fairy tales do actually exist in this world. So this is a little passage about a fairy tale that comes up a lot in the novel and it also has a really cool bit of world building. Her mother, Leanna, had grown up in the Magnificent North and she had raised Evangeline on their fairy tales. In the North, fairy tales and history were treated as one and the same because their stories and histories were all cursed. Some tales couldn't be written down without bursting into flames. Others couldn't leave the North and many changed every time they were shared, becoming less and less real with every retelling. It was said that every northern tale had started as true history, but over time the northern story curse had twisted all the tales until only bits of truth remained. One of the stories Leanna used to tell Evangeline was the Ballad of the Archer and the Fox, a romantic tale about a crafty peasant girl who could transform into a fox and the young archer who loved her but was cursed with the need to hunt her down and kill her. Evangeline loved the story because she too was a fox, even if she weren't the sort who could turn into an animal. She might have also had a tiny crush on the archer. Evangeline made her mother tell her the tale over and over, but since this story was cursed, every time her mother neared the end, she would suddenly forget what she'd been saying. She could never tell Evangeline if the archer kissed his fox girl and if they lived happily together forever, or if he killed the fox girl, ending their story in death. Evangeline would always ask her mother to just tell her how she thought the story ended, but her mother always refused. I believe there are far more possibilities than happily ever after or tragedy. Every story has the potential for infinite endings. Evangeline's mother repeated the sentiment so often that it grew inside Evangeline, rooting itself into the heart of her beliefs. 
Oh, I love that. I was actually going to ask you what the foxes on the cover had to do with anything, and now you've just answered me. Yeah. (laughs) That is it. I just... I really want to read the Ballad of the Archer and the Fox. I really want to know how it ends. (laughs) That is, like, a big plot point of Once Upon a Broken Heart, is Evangeline wants the end of the story, and she's, Mm. like, trying to search out a copy of the book, and she can't find one. I love that line about there are infinitely more possibilities than uh, happily ever after a tragedy. Yeah. I wish I'd read that. I know, it's so good, isn't like, it? Like, when I was younger, I wish I had encountered that sentence. I know. Because I feel like I know that now, but like there was definitely a time where that was my yeah, binary worldview. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, like, I love the idea of the stories being cursed. That's very cool. It's just so, like, the first time I read that, I was like, how did she go up with that? That's genius. Mm. Do you think that's meant to be like, like band books or like stories that, you know, shift and mean different things or like, or just fun, world building. I th- it's any story. Mm. So it's just like. Oh okay. Yeah, it's not like any. It's not like specific stories, it's like any story. Oh, okay, right. I thought it was like like specific stories were cursed. No, just all stories are cursed. All stories are cursed. Okay. (laughs) That's different. I thought it was like there was ones that you weren't supposed to tell. No, no, no. Stories are cursed. So like you start Mm. saying them and then you can't. It's like that. You just can't, you don't know the ending or like. That's crazy. You both forget what you were talking about. Oh my god, that's so weird. I know! So yeah, I just love that. (laughs) I just really enjoy that. And yeah, just before I finish, um, because that is kind of me done, I just want to talk about the design of this book because it's so stunning. The sleeve looks like a fairy tale book, but the closer you look at it, the more like disturbing it is. One of the knights has a missing head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The other knight has his sword going into a bottle of poison. There's loads of like cracks over all the walls Mm. and stuff. Oh yeah, and it has a, a really nice map inside that I just need to show you. <gasps> Welcome to the Magnificent North. Stories be here. <laughs> Whoa, that's really, like, I, you guys can't see this, but that's a really stunning map. It's not like, uh, it's like in a video game when you have an island and all the <laughs> landmarks pop up and you can, like, walk in amongst them. Yeah. It's like that kind of map. Look at the moon. The moon is so cool. <laughs> the mermaids are cool. The mermaids are really cool. Yeah, I love it so much. There's so many little details. There's a tiny little dragon there. Oh, oh yeah, that's part of this book. There's baby dragons, and they like they're on like food stalls and stuff. They like, you know, say you had like, like a skewer of meat. The dragon will like breathe its little fire on oh. it and like cook the meat for you and stuff. Oh, that's cute. I know. <laughs> yeah, another cool thing about the copy that I have which was the first print UK edition is that the undercover design was a lucky dip they made four versions of the cover you either got an arrow a poison bottle a book or a fox but you like wouldn't know what one you got Mm. until you removed the sleeve I just think it's genius marketing what did you Um, get it's I got the arrow which I was very happy about yeah because you're a Fletcher my surname means arrow maker that's so Um, pretty too yeah, it's very pretty. Speaking of the undercover design, I know the fairy loot edition of this book was designed by Rosie Thorns, who we all know is like my favourite artist. 
Um, and she designed the book to look like the Ballad of the Archer and the Fox. Oh. Um, it's just so pretty, and I'm going to try my hardest to get a copy when they do one of their like restocks, which is next month. I've made sure I'm not working that day <laughs> so that I can try and buy this book because I'm desperate to have it. Oh my god, you're such a dedicated collector. I love it. I really am. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just wanted to shout out the designs because I love when a book design is just like so much part of the book. Mm. And yeah, I can't wait for book two, which is out uh, this year. It's called The Ballad of Never After, which is a very nice title. Mm. And that's me. <laughs> I like that they both have like the like the Once Upon a and the Ballad of a, which has like hope in it. Yeah. And then it's like broken heart. Yeah. Never after. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. It's like, oh, Evangeline jacks. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, so what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated, oh god, the vibe's going to be different now. (laughs) I am infatuated with The Miniaturist by Jessie Burton. I genuinely can't believe that neither of us have read this before. It has been on my list for the longest time. Yeah, so it came out in 2014. It sold a million copies. (laughs) And it's so quintessentially female gothic. It's probably the most... like the most female gothic female gothic Mm -hmm. that I have read that is modern Okay. and I know I've not read as many as you but like this has every single trope in it, I was amazed (laughs) Um, so yeah I've been meaning to pick it up for a while and I finally got this really pretty Waterstones edition with the blue sprayed edges Mm -hmm. last month which I enjoy a lot so the first thing I want to say about this book is that it was a bit of a surprise for me because I didn't know anything about the plot going in. Mm-hmm. The blurb is very good at not giving stuff away whilst like giving you an overview. Yeah. So I knew there was a TV show based on it. Yeah. I knew it took place in Amsterdam and I knew it involved a miniature cabinet. But to be honest, I thought it was going to be like a fantasy novel where mm. like she goes into the cabinet or something. Mm-hmm. It's not that. No. <laughs> um, it's very much more slow burn gothic thriller in the vein of like Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier or The Yellow Wallpaper and there's no magic in it but I would say that it uses like the element of the supernatural to skew realism so that's fun. It has got a lot going on in it so I won't give spoilers but we have a death right off the bat. We have corporate espionage in the 1600s. Mm. We have religious persecution, because it's the 1600s. Uh-huh. We have a queer love story. We have a race storyline. We have a jealous ex-lover. We have a gossipy maid. We have an illicit pregnancy. And we have animals who are, like, part of the plot. Okay. So there is just so much happens. <laughs> so I'm going to read the prologue to give you an idea of the tone, because I feel like it shows you how immediately unsettling <laughs> this mm-hmm. book is. So this is The Old Church, Amsterdam, Tuesday the 14th of January, 1687. The funeral is supposed to be a quiet affair, for the deceased had no friends. But words are water in Amsterdam. They flood your ears and set the rot, and the church's east corner is crowded. She watches the scene unfold from the safety of the choir stall, as guildsmen and their wives approach the gaping grave like ants towards the honey. Soon they are joined by VOC clerks, and ship's captains, regentesses, pastry makers, and him, still wearing that broad-brimmed hat. She's 
She tries to pity him. Pity, unlike hate, can be boxed and put away. The church's painted roof, the one thing the reformers didn't pull down, rises above them like the tipped-up hull of a magnificent ship. It is a mirror to the city's soul. Inked on its ancient beams, Christ in judgment holds his sword and lily, a golden cargo breaks the waves, the virgin rests on a crescent moon. Flipping up the old misery cord beside her, her fingers flutter on the proverb of exposed wood. It is a relief of a man shitting a bag of coins, a leer of pain chipped across his face. What's changed, she thinks. And yet. Even the dead are in attendance today, grave slabs hiding body on body, bones on dust, stacked up beneath the mourner's feet. Below that floor are women's jaws, a merchant's pelvis, the hollow ribs of a fat grandee. There are little corpses down there, some no longer than a loaf of bread. Noting how people shift their eyes from such condensed sadness, how they move from any tiny slab they see, she cannot blame them. At the centre of the crowd, the woman spies what she has come for. The girl looks exhausted, grief-etched, standing by a hole in the floor. She barely notices the citizens who have come to stare. The pallbearers walk up the nave, the coffin on their shoulders balanced like a case for a lute. By the looks of their faces, you might have thought a few of them have reservations about this funeral. It will be Pelicorn's doing, she supposes. Same old poison in the ear. Normally processions like this are in tight order, the virgin masters at the top and the common folk beneath, but on this day no one has bothered. The woman supposes that there's never been a body like it in any of God's houses within the compass of this city. She loves its rare, defiant quality. Founded on risk, Amsterdam now craves certainty, a neat passage through life, guarding the comfort of its money with dull obedience. I should have left before today, she thinks. Death has come too close. The circle breaks apart as the pallbearers push their way in. As the coffin is lowered into the hole without ceremony, the girl moves toward the edge. She tosses a posy of flowers into the dark, and a starling beats its wings, scaling up the church's whitewashed wall. Heads turn, distracted, but the girl does not flinch, and neither does the woman in the choir stall, both of them watching the arc of petals as Pelicorn intones his final prayer. As the pallbearers slide the new slab into place, a maidservant kneels by the vanishing dark. She starts to sob, and when the exhausted girl does nothing to check these rising tears, this lack of dignity and order is noted with a tut. Two women, dressed in silk, stand near the choir stall and whisper between themselves. That kind of behaviour is why we're here in the first place, one murmurs. If they're like this in public, they must behave like wild animals indoors, her friend replies. True, what I wouldn't give to be a fly on that wall. Bzz, bzz. They stifle a giggle, and in the choir stall the woman notices how her knuckle has turned white upon the moral misery cord. With the church floor sealed once again, the circle dissolves, the dead at bay. The girl, like a stained-glass saint fallen from the church's window, acknowledges the uninvited hypocrites. These people start to chatter as they exit toward the city's winding streets, followed eventually by the girl and her maid, who move silently, arm in arm, along the nave and out. Most of the men will be going back to their desks and counters, because keeping Amsterdam afloat takes constant work. 
Hard grind got us the glory, the saying goes, but sloth will slide us back into the sea. And these days the rising waters feel so near. Once the church is empty, the woman emerges from the choir stall. She hurries, not wanting to be discovered. Things can change, she says, her voice whispering off the walls. When she finds the newly laid slab, she sees it as a rush job, the granite still warmer than the other graves, the chiselled words still dusty. That these events have come to pass should be unbelievable. She kneels and reaches in her pocket to complete what she has started. This is her own prayer, a miniature house small enough to sit in the palm. Nine rooms and five human figures are carved within, the craftsmanship so intricate, worked outside of time. Carefully, the woman places this offering where she had always intended it to lie, blessing the cool granite with her toughened fingers. As she pushes open the church door, she looks instinctively for the broad-brimmed hat, the cloak of Pelicorn, the silken women. All have vanished, and she could be alone in the world were it not for the noise of the trapped starling. It's time to leave, but for a moment the woman holds the door open for the bird. Sensing her effort, instead it flaps away behind the pulpit. She closes away the church's cool interior, turning to face the sun, heading from the ringed canals toward the sea. Starling, she thinks. If you believe that building is the safer spot, then I am not the one to set you free. Oh, I like it. So, yeah, that is a lot. And I feel like that does a really good job of setting up the the world, if you like, mm-hmm. the, the culture. You get a lot from that. But I just find it really eerie, this like thought of this woman just putting this wee miniature house on the grave and that line like where she'd always intended it to lie Mm. is just unnerving to me. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, that's to give an idea of the tone. The premise that follows on from this is it's the 1600s and 18-year-old Nella Ertman arrives on the doorstep of her new husband, Johannes Brandt's house. Johannes is a merchant and his house is very impressive. It has several floors and lots of rooms, but He's a lot older than her, and basically it's like he's looking for a wife, he chooses her, they get married, and after the ceremony he left immediately on a ship on business. And he's like, oh yeah, I'll welcome you properly when you get to Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. So she rocks up, Johannes isn't there. Instead she's met with his sister, who is a very severe, pious spinster named Marin. And we also have the housekeeper Cornelia, who is not much older than Nella herself. And we have... Otto, who is Johannes's right-hand man and who is black, which is very unusual in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. He's basically been a slave that Johannes has bought, but then, like, brought back mm-hmm. to set free. Right. But, like, let stay with him and, okay. like, educate him and whatever. So that's complex in its own, right? When Johannes arrives back, he doesn't sleep with Nella. And obviously she's, like, an 18-year-old, she's a new wife, she's like, this is going to happen, I'm terrified, but I'm going to do it. I'm mm-hmm. going to be a good wife, it's going to be fine. She psychs herself all up for it, gets back, just doesn't do it. And she's like, okay. Mm. So she's a little bit hurt by that, but he's also not unkind to her. So after a few days of like awkwardness, he comes home with a wedding gift for her. And it is this. Okay. My passages are quite long. Um, I'm sorry about this. <laughs> 
the the book has long writing. <laughs> An hour later, the sound of men's voices, barking dogs, and Johannes's laughter comes up the main staircase. Nella looks out of the window onto the canal path and sees three strong journeymen with ropes slung over their shoulders. They are stepping out of the house, their sleeves rolled up. By the time Nella has left her room, Marin is already in the hall. Johannes, she hisses, what on earth have you done? Nella moves quietly along the landing and gasps when she sees what the three men have left in the hallway. In the middle of the tiles is a cabinet, an enormous looming structure measuring nearly half Johannes's height again, a huge cupboard supported by eight curved and sturdy feet, two mustard-coloured velvet curtains drawn across its front. Having shunted the Bible lectern into the corner to make room, Johannes stands by its side. One hand rests upon it. He gazes up at the gleaming wood, his smile unrelenting. He seems refreshed, more handsome than Ella has ever seen him. Maron approaches the cabinet with caution, as if it might fall on her or start to move of its own accord. Rizeki backs away with a deep girl. Rizeki and Dana are the dogs. Is this a joke? asks Maron. How much did it cost? For once, sister, let's not talk of money, Johannes says. You told me to find a distraction, not a monstrosity. Is that saffron dye in those curtains? A distraction, Nella echoes, standing on the stairs. Marin spins round to face her, her expression aghast. Something for you, Johannes calls. A wedding gift. He pats the side of the cabinet and its curtains seem to twitch. What is it, senior? Made of oak and elm. Elm is strong, Johannes says, as if this is the explanation his new wife has been waiting for. He looks at Marin. It's used for coffins. Marin's mouth sets in a thin line. Where did you get it, Johannes? Johannes shrugs. A man at the docks said he had some cabinets left over from a dead carpenter's business. I had it improved with tortoiseshell veneer and pewter inlays. Why have you done this, Marin says. Petronella has no need of such a thing. It's for her education, Johannes replies. My what? Johannes reaches out for Rizeki, but the dog bucks away from her master. Hush, girl, hush. She doesn't like it, says Cornelia, who has followed Nella down the stairs. Nella wonders whether Cornelia is re referring to her or the dog. Both of us, by the look of it, she thinks, watching Rizeki's hackles rise. Cornelia holds her broom like a staff in front of herself, as if expecting an attack. Education, Marin scoffs. What does Petronella need with education? I should say she has a very great need, Johannes says. No, I don't, thinks Nella. I'm 18, not 8. But what is it, senor? She asks, trying to hide her dismay. Finally, Johannes reaches for the curtains, and with an extravagant flourish, he pulls them aside. The women gasp. The inside of the cabinet is revealed, divided into nine sections, some lined with gold embossed wallpaper and others with wooden panels. Is it this house? Nella says. It's your house, Johannes corrects her, pleased. It's a lot easier to manage, says Cornelia, craning to see into the upper rooms. The accuracy of the cabinet is eerie, as if the real house has been shrunk, its body sliced in two and its organs revealed. The nine rooms, from the working kitchen, the salon, up to the loft where the peat and firewood are stored away from the damp, are perfect replicas. It's got a hidden cellar too, 
Johanna says, lifting up the floor between the working and the best kitchens to reveal a concealed, empty space. The ceiling in the best kitchen has even been painted with an identical trick of the eye. Nella remembers her conversation with Otto. Things will spill over, he'd said, pointing his finger to that unreal dome. Rosecki growls and circles the cabinet. How much was this, Johannes? Marin demands. The frame was 2,000, he says placidly. The curtains brought it to three. Three thousand guilders! Three thousand! Invested properly, a family could live off that for years. Marin, you have never lived off two thousand guilders in one year for all your herring dinners, and with Meerman's deal, what is there to worry about? Well, if you were doing something about it, I wouldn't be worrying. For once in your life, be quiet. Marin reluctantly stands away from the wooden construction. Otto appears from the kitchen and eyes the new arrival with interest. Johanna seems slightly deflated, as if sensing his gesture is beginning to backfire. The tortoiseshell casing reminds Nella of autumn in Assenfeld, oranges and browns caught in motion, of Carol taking her by the hands and spinning her around beneath the garden trees. Pewter has indeed been embedded through the metal veins, fine and flowing over the entire surface, even the legs. There is an odd thrill in the wood and the shell. Even the touch of the velvet curtains suggests a certain power. I know it's going to be creepy eventually, but I want that in like my future Victorian mansion. <laughs> <laughs> I think it sounds creepy, but I've always found like dollhouse type things creepy. You just wouldn't put any dolls in it. Yeah, that's true. But is that not even eerier? Just to have like a planner's replica of your house? I don't know. Quite like creepy stuff. Yeah, you do. That's true. I don't like dolls, though. I agree with that. Yeah. Sentiment. <laughs> um. So what I like so much about this passage is that not only does it describe the cabinet, which obviously you need, but <laughs> it also shows how like shows so much of the characters through their reactions. Mm, mm-hmm. Like the if you distill it down, you've got Johannes is proud, Marin is disgusted, Nella is bemused, and that pretty much sets their pieces. Right. And what I love, the reason I phrased it like that, is that if you look on the cover, the oh. they are framed as pieces. Yes. So, yeah, that's pretty neat. And obviously you've got the beginning of the doppelganger trope as well, because the house is a doppelganger. And as we've talked about in our episode where we discussed Coraline, we know that's a pretty common feature of the female gothic, when the house is, like, replicated. Mm-hmm. To furnish the cabinet... Nella finds a miniaturist in Smith's List, which is like ye old phone book. And she <laughs> requests some... So she just writes to this miniaturist in the advert. She requests some miniature furniture and to fulfil her own little fantasy, she asks for a miniature betrothal cup. Right. Because Johannes hasn't given her one. Okay. And she's just like, she's like, I should have got that when I came here. Now, at this point, you might think that the cabinet is going to become if not a magical escape, at least a psychological escape for Nella, who is like trapped in this loveless marriage. But then she receives the furniture. And I have to I have to tell you, it's it's not fun. <laughs> Bulky, the width of a dinner plate, it has been wrapped in smooth paper and string. A sentence has been written round the sun in black capitals. Every woman is the architect of her own fortune. Nella reads it twice, puzzled, a feather thrum of excitement in her belly. Women don't build anything, 
let alone their own fates, she thinks. All our fates are in the hands of God, and women's in particular, after their husbands have passed them through their fingers and childbirth has put them through the ringer. She pulls out the first object and weighs a tiny silver box in her palm. On the top, an N and an O have been carved with encircling flowers and vines. She carefully prizes open the lid, the miniature hinges well-oiled, silent. Inside lies a neat block of marzipan about the length of a coffee bean, and her taste buds come alive at the prospect of the sweet almond sugar. She probes with a fingernail and puts it on the tip of her tongue. The marzipan is real, even scented with rose water. Nella removes a second object. Here is a lute, no longer than her forefinger, with real tuned strings, its wooden body swelling to hold the sound of the notes. Never has she seen things like this. The craftsmanship, the care, the beauty of these objects. She plucks tentatively, astonished as a quiet chord sings out. Remembering the skeleton of a tune she played Johannes in Assenfeld, Nella now plays it again, alone. The next dive in reveals the requested betrothal cup. Made of pewter, a man and a woman with their hands entwined around the rim. Its diameter is no wider than a grain. All newly married couples drink from these cups in their republic, just as she and Johannes should have done back in September. Nella imagines them both taking a sip of the Rhenish wine, standing in her, in her father's old orchard, rice and petals showered on their heads. This little cup is a memento of something that never actually occurred. What she had intended as a rebellion against Marin now makes Nella feel strange and pathetically sad. She picks up the wrappings in order to discard them, then realises there are more things inside. This cannot be correct, she thinks, her gloom warping into curiosity. Everything I asked for is already on the bed. She tips the packet up and three wrapped items fall onto the coverlet. Nella fumbles with the material encasing the first and discovers two exquisite wooden chairs. Lions the size of ladybirds have been carved on their armrests. The backs are covered with green velvet studded with copper nails. On each of the arms, sea monsters writhe in acanthus leaves. Nella realises she's seen these chairs before. Last week in the salon downstairs, Marin was sitting on one of them. Beginning to feel uneasy, she unwraps the next item. Something small but bulky waits in the folds of the cloth and she wrenches it free. It is a cradle, made of oak, with intricate floral inlays, tin runners and a fringe of lace at the hood. A quiet miracle of wood, its tiny presence nevertheless makes Nella's throat constrict. She places it in the middle of her palm, where it rocks in a perfect motion, almost of its own accord. This has to be a mistake, she thinks. These pieces are intended for someone else. Chairs, a cradle, perhaps the usual things a woman might ask for in a replica of her house. But I didn't. I definitely didn't. She rips apart the wrapping on the third package, and beneath another layer of blue material is a pair of miniature dogs. Two whippet bodies no larger than moths, covered in silky grey fur, with skulls the size of peas. Between them there is a bone for them to chew, a shank of clothes painted yellow. The smell is unmistakable. Nella picks up the animals and peers closer, her blood charging round her body. These dogs are not any dogs. They are Rizeki and Dana. Nella drops them quickly as if they've stung her and jumps off the bed. 
In the dark and unlit corner of the room, the cabinet waits for its new deliveries. Its curtains are still pulled open, like unseemly lifted skirts. She allows herself a brief glance down to the whippet-scattered bodies. The same curve and colour of their flanks, their wonderful streamlined ears. Come on, Nella Elizabeth, she says to herself. Who says they're the same whippets curled up by Cornelia's stove? She holds both miniature dogs up to the light. Their bodies are slightly spongy, their joints articulated, covered in grey mouse skin and soft as an earlobe. When Nella turns them over, her blood slows to an uncomfortable thump. On one of the dog's bellies is a small black spot, in exactly the same place as Dana's. Nella stares around the room. Is someone here? She tries to be reasonable. Of course not, Nella, she thinks. You've never felt more alone. Who might want to trick her? Cornelia wouldn't have the money to play such games, nor to think of them. Nor would Otto, and surely he would not willingly write to a stranger. Nella feels a sense of invasion, as if she's being closely observed in her bridal foolishness. It's Marin, she thinks. Marin is taking revenge for Johannes's marriage and me getting in her way. She spills my lily perfume. She forbids me marzipan. She pinches me hard on the arm. She was the one who gave me Smith's list. Why wouldn't Marin pay the miniaturist to frighten me? For her, it's just another idle amusement. And yet, idle and amusement are not one words one might associate with Marin Brandt. And even as she thinks of her sister-in-law, Nella knows it doesn't make sense. Marin eats like a mouse and shops like a nun, except for her books and her specimens, probably purloined from Johannes's travels. This can't be Marin's doing because it involves spending money. But as Nella looks over the unasked for pieces again, part of her actually hopes it's her sister-in-law. Because if it's not Marin, she wonders, what other sort of strangeness have I invited in? Mm. <sighs> so many bits that I love about this passage. <laughs> I love that she's like, already we're getting like the gaslight vibes, where she's mm-hmm. like, I definitely didn't order that. I definitely didn't order this. Yeah. Or then she's like is someone here? No, don't, like, be reasonable. Like, (laughs) I love that trope of, like, she thinks she's going mental and that drives her mental. Yeah. So, yeah, we, like, I feel like we can see where this is going, right? The miniaturist does not stop sending scarily accurate pieces. Yeah. Some about secrets she couldn't possibly have known. Slowly Nella becomes consumed with the mystery of this miniature house um, and distracted from the secrets right in front of her. And that leads to consequences. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to switch gears slightly now and not go further into the plot because I want to talk briefly about one of the biggest mysteries in the book, which is Marin. Okay. Marin is my favourite character. <laughs> <laughs> she, at one point, she describes the house as a knot and her character is so inconsistent that I think that she like really embodies that. Mm-hmm. Like She describes the house as a knot, but I feel like she's the knot that right. holds the house together. Uh-huh. So here is a passage that I think shows the weird journey that is getting to know Marin. Okay. Because I really thought she was like a Mrs. Danvers type character when I first encountered her. I was like, oh, that's what this is going to be. Mm. Not really. So this <laughs> is where Nella decides, I don't know why she decides to do this, but she sees that Marin's room is unlocked and empty. And she's raging at her for something that she's done. So she's like, I'm going to go and snoop in her room. Okay. (laughs) Still on the threshold, Nella cannot believe what she is seeing. 
none small the room's contents could fill a convent. She wonders how willingly Marin gave up the dimensions of her old chamber for this overflowing cell of fantasy. Dangling from the ceiling is the shed skin of a huge snake, draped like a pennant, papery to touch. Plumes of all patterns and shapes, once attached to the most exotic of birds, brush against her outstretched fingers. Instinctively, Nella looks for a green feather, relieved to find that none resemble Peebles. Peebles is her parrot. A butterfly, wider than her palm, is pinned to the wall, the sky blue of its wings overwritten with swirls of black. The room is full of smells. The strongest is of nutmeg, but there is also a sandalwood tang and clove and pepper imbuing the very walls, such sense of heat and warning. Nella moves further in. Along the simple wooden shelves is a miscellany of yellowing animal skulls, belonging to creatures she can't even guess at. Long jaws, snub craniums, strong, sharp teeth. Beetle carpuses, shiny as coffee beans, iridescent in the light, glow back with a tinge of red. An upturned tortoise shell rocks gently at her touch. Dried plants and berries, seed pods, seeds themselves. The source of these intoxicating scents are everywhere. This is not a room from Amsterdam, though it shows an Amsterdamer's drive for acquisition. This is the Republic's reach in four small walls. There is the map of the African continent, huge, so much unknown. Ringed in the centre of the western coastline is a place called Porto Novo. There are questions written over it in Marin's neat hand. Weather? Food? God? There is a map of the Indies, with many more circles and arrows, marking from where the flora and fauna found in this room have come. Moloka, 1676, Batavia, 1679, Java, 1682, all voyages Marin has surely never made herself. On the table by the window is an open notebook, and it appears to contain a detailed categorisation of all these things. Marin's handwriting flows better than her speech, and Nella recognises it from the envelope that was sent to her mother earlier this year. She feels again the trespasser's tension, Desperate to stay and find out more, but dreading the trap she's willfully set herself. I'm no more mistress of this house than little Arabella back in Assenfeld, she thinks. Further along the shelf is a strange-looking lamp, with the wings of a bird and a woman's head and breasts. Nella reaches out to touch its cool, thick metal. Next to the lamp is a pile of books, and their pages emanate a loamy mix of damp and pigskin. Nella lifts the top one off the pile, too curious about Marin's reading habits to think about anyone coming up the stairs. The first book is a travel journal entitled The Unfortunate Voyage of the Ship Batavia. Most people in the United Provinces are familiar with the story of Cornelizun's mutiny, the infamous onboard enslavement of Lucretia Jans and her implication in the murders of the survivors. Nella is no exception, but her mother hated the more salacious aspects of the story. It's because of that Jan's woman that ladies no longer sail so much, and a good thing too. Nella's father had observed when he was still alive. Women on board bring bad luck. They only bring the luck men give them, Mrs Ertman had retorted. Nella closes the book, puts it back and runs her fingers delicately over the uneven bump and jut of the spines. There are so many books here, and as much as she would like to read all the titles, she knows she cannot dawdle. 
Marin must spend a good gilder on this habit, Nella supposes, rubbing the luxurious paper. Beneath the unfortunate voyage is a book by Hesius, who everyone knows is banished from the country for manslaughter. It is almost a crime to own it, and the fact that Marin has a copy astonishes Nella. There is also a folio edition of Simon's Almanac, Children's Diseases by Stephanus Blancart, and Bonteco's The Memorable Accounts of the Voyage of the New Horn. Nella flicks through Bonteco's accounts of the tales of voyage and peril, full of brilliant woodcuts, ribs of shipwrecks, great sunrises and swallowing seas. One woodcut depicts a shoreline, waves in the background cushioning a large vessel. In the foreground, two men face each other. The first man has his arms and legs filled in with fine black lines, a ring through his nose and a spear in his hand. The other is dressed in the old-fashioned style of a Dutchman. Their expressions are the same, however. Impassive, trapped in their own closed orb of experience, the gap between them wider than the sea beyond. The spine is flexible. The book has been used often. As Nella moves to put it back on the pile, a piece of paper covered in writing falls from the middle pages. She scoops it from the floor and the words charge her blood. I love you. I love you. From front to back, I love you. Nella feels a tingling sensation in the roof of her mouth. In a daze, she puts the book back, unable to let go of the extraordinary note. There are more words on the scrap of paper, hasty dancing words not in Marin's handwriting. You are sunlight through a window, which I stand in, warmed. One touch lasts a thousand hours. My darling, pain shoots through Nella's arm. Someone grips it tightly and won't let go. Marin looms, white-faced, turning Nella around like a rag doll. The note flutters to the floor and Nella covers it with her foot as Marin drags her away. Did you look at my books? Marin hisses. Did you? No, I... Yes, you did. Did you open them? Of course not. Marin adjusts her grip, her hand shaking from the pressure. Marin! Nella gasps. It hurts. You're hurting me. For a couple more seconds, Marin does not let go. Then Nella wrenches herself free. I'll tell my husband, she shouts. I'll show him what you've done. We don't like traitors, Marin hisses. Go. Now. Nella stumbles away, straight into the snakeskin in her hurry to escape. These things don't belong to you, Marin calls after her. She slams her door and the scent of spice evaporates. Safely on the island of her own bed, Nella murmurs to her pillow, her mouth dry and mind incredulous. One touch lasts a thousand hours. That ink was secret nectar, for Marin isn't married. The writing was scrawled, but Nella is sure it was not Marin's. I should never have gone in there, she thinks. Perhaps Marin was even waiting in the darkness to catch me in the act. She imagines her sister-in-law stringing her up on one of the ceiling beams, patterns falling off her swinging feet among the feathers, her cold body warmed by poetic sunlight through a window. Marin starts to shift in Nella's mind. From her drab black clothes, Marin rises like a phoenix, enveloped in her nutmeg scent, no lily for her, no floral nicety. Covered in the symbols of the city, Marin is a daughter of its power, she is a secret surveyor of maps, an annotator of specimens, an annotator of something else as well, not so easy to slot into a category. Nella imagines the smell of spice on Marin's skin, hearing her across the damask tablecloth telling her brother exactly how to trade. Who is this woman? From back to front, I love you.
What a disturbing way to have been caught by feeling the pain in, in your, your arm. arm. <laughs> also, like, imagine, so, like, this is a very proper house, as you've gathered. Yeah. And imagine just opening the door and there's, like, a snake skin hanging from the ceiling. I know. <laughs> like, this is not a house of curiosities. <laughs> You'd be like, what the uh, fuck, man? <laughs> Which is why I love man. <laughs> yeah. Because, um... I think, like, the scandal of the love notes is obviously the heart of that scene, but mm-hmm. I love also just the luxury and the weirdness of that bedroom. Mm-hmm. This book is so much about the way that the house reveals and conceals people, mm-hmm. and so I think that's, like, a very lush way to reveal Marin. Um, so immediately when I read that, she was my favourite character, and arguably, I would say, the main character. I won't get into that argument too much, but I feel like even though it's not her point of view, she becomes the story. Right, yeah. So we also learn a few pages later, I'm not going to read it out, but she lines the inside of her bodices with sable and rabbit furs. Oh. Which, like, again, she's very penny-pinching. Yeah. (laughs) But she lines all of her bodices with fur, which is such a weird and sensual image. Mm. when she's so pious and, like, oh, it's so good. So, yeah, I know that I've done, like, it's this long... Um, and I've done a lot of quotes, but I'm going to read out one more, which is my favourite Marin moment. She's Because she's so funny. Like, she's so scary, and then she's so funny. So this is on their way to church, where Marin is dragging the lot of them. And I love it, because it's one of the few scenes where the whole household is interacting, mm-hmm. which I think is fun. So here we go. Oh, Johannes isn't there, because obviously, because <laughs> he's never fucking there. <laughs> Desperate to visit the Calver Strat, Nella deliberately lags behind Marin, whose feet are pounding the canal paths as if they've done her a personal disservice. Rizeki, never that happy without her master, is at the bourse with Johannes. Not wanting to leave Dana behind, Nella walks with the second whippet, the dog trotting obediently at her side, wet black nose tipped up toward her new adopted mistress. Do you usually take the dogs to church? Nella asks Cornelia. The maid nods. Madame Marin says they can't be trusted on their own. I could bring people. Don't be ridiculous, says Marin from over her shoulder, and Nella marvels at her ability to eavesdrop. It is a brilliant day, the terracotta rooftops almost vermilion, the temperature cold enough to dilute any stench from the canal. Carriages clatter by, the waterways full of vessels loaded with men, women, bundles of goods, even a few sheep. They walk up the Herengracht, up Vizelstrat, and over the bridge onto the turf market, leading towards the old church. Nella looks longingly towards her original destination, before Cornelia reminds her that unless Madame looks in the direction she is going, Madame will trip upon the cobbles. From the boats, from their windows, from the canal path, people stare. With every step they take past the tall and slender silk merchants' houses on the Wormestrat, past the shops selling the Italian Maulica, Leon silk, Spanish taffeta, porcelain from Nuremberg and Harlem linen, the Amsterdamers impress upon them a selection of looks. For a moment, Nella wonders what it is they have done. Then she sees the muscles tense in the back of Otto's neck. He calls to Dana to put on her lead. It speaks, Nella hears someone say to a peal of laughter. When Otto passes, there's hardly a face that doesn't open in surprise to see him walking with these women. Some expressions curdle to suspicion, others to disdain or outright fear. Some are blankly fascinated, others seem unbothered, but it doesn't make up for the rest. 
as the party drops off down the Wormestrat, approaching the back of the old church. A man with smallpox scars sitting on a low bench at the door calls out as Otto passes by. I can't find work and you give that animal a job. Marin wavers but Cornelia stops walking. She strides back and raises her fist inches from his cratered skin. This is Amsterdam whole face, she says. The best man wins. Nella makes a strangled, nervous laugh which dies as the man lifts his own fist to Cornelia's face. This is Amsterdam bitch. The best man knows the right friends. Cornelia, hold your tongue, calls Marin. Come away. He should have his tongue cut out. Cornelia, sweet Jesus, are we all of us animals? Ten years Toot's been here and nothing's changed, the maid mutters, coming back to her mistress. You'd think they'd be used to it. Whole face, Cornelia, how could you, Marin says. But Nella hears a distinct note of approval in her voice. Otto gazes towards the horizon, far beyond the buildings of Amsterdam. He does not look at whole face. Dana, he calls. The dog finally stops, perks her head up and trots towards him. Don't go too far, girl, he says. Me or the dog, Cornelia sighs. Though people continue to goggle, no one else offers their commentary. Nella notices how they look at Marin too. Unusually tall for a woman, with her long neck and head held high, Marin is like the figurehead on the bow of a ship, leaving waves of turning faces in her wake. Nella sees her through their eyes, the perfect Dutch woman, immaculate, handsome, and walking with a purpose. The only thing missing is a husband. How it looks that Johannes does not come to church, Nella hears Marin observing to Otto. In the face of his silence, Marin turns back to the girls. Did he invite the Meermanses to dinner? She asks Nella. Nella hesitates, on the cusp of a lie. Not yet, she replies. Marin stops, unable to hide her fury, her mouth held in an undignified awe of shock as she accuses Nella with a flash of her grey eyes. Well, I couldn't make him invite them, says Nella. My God, Marin cries, stepping in a puddle of slop. She strides ahead, leaving the other three behind. Must I do it all? (laughs) (laughs) I like that we see the crack in the veneer here. Yeah. And she, like, knows that she's playing a part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, like, she actually kind of likes when Cornelia goes off because she can't do it. And, like, yeah. she wants to run the show, but her brother's a man, so she has to, like... Yeah. I feel like at this point you're, like, you can see why Marin is the way she is because what else is she meant to be? Yeah. But also she's so hypocritical that she's, like, <laughs> can't believe he doesn't come to church! And then she's got, like, illicit love notes in her books and you're, like... Yeah, but it's always the ones that are... <laughs> the signalling ones. Yeah. Yeah, the ones that make a big deal out of it. Those are the sus ones. Yep. So yeah, I just I also think that, that bit makes her seem a bit younger, because I think all the way through it I had this image that she was quite old, mm-hmm. but she's Johannes's younger sister. Right, So okay. she's like in her 30s. I see, I see. So I feel like that bit, you kind of get that, where she's like, oh, do I need to do everything? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... One more thing that I'll say, which won't really resonate if you've not read it, but I feel like anyone that has read it, I need to shout this out. The only room that isn't represented in the miniaturist cabinet is Marin's room. Oh. And it's the only room that the miniaturist never sends anything that's in it. A little tiny snake skin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I I feel like that's, like, super genius. 
symbolism yeah. for like I say, I've kind of gathered that Marin is is the true mystery of the house, and yeah. even the miniaturist can't mm. know what's and she knows everything. Yeah, but she doesn't know what's in Marin's room. Interesting. So yeah, overall, I really enjoyed the ride of this book. I found it. It is slow, as you'll have gathered from those passages. It's very creeping and slow. And I do feel like the third act was... It goes from that slow pace to just, like, absolutely fucking buck wild in the third act and everything happens. So, yeah, that, like, I guess was a disadvantage for me because I kind of wish that there wasn't such a rush at the end. But I do think it's worth the read because you get your investment back. Yeah, I'd say that's fairly typical of a traditional female mm. gothic anyway. Yeah, it's very like slow burn and then everything comes crashing down at the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how many things it sets up mm-hmm. and I think that you should read it for your thesis. Yeah, I, like I think I probably will because I, I re- I've got a few of Laura Purcell's books and it always says on those covers like fans of Jesse Burton. Burton so I'm like well if I like her then I'm sure it goes like the mm. other way around <laughs> like so yeah I do I do want to read it I want to read her one called The Muse mm. as well yeah and Jesse Burton has a Medusa book out right now as well that's very cool I feel like I could write full academic essays on the fact that all of the stuff is described in terms of like insect proportions in oh. the house like, so many of the descriptions are, like, the size of a ladybird, the size of a moth. The si- and I'm like, obviously that's just because they're small things. Yeah. But it's such a particularly creepy mm. image. Yeah. And I'm like, creepy. I wonder what that's all about. Yeah. So for our writing chat this week, we're submitted a question by the inimitable D. Fair. <laughs> Which was, are you a planner or a pantser? Do you want to take it away? Sure. I don't... I don't know what I am. Maybe you can tell me. Okay. <laughs> but, well, I only have experience of writing one novel, which is still not, like, fully formed. And I have another novel kind of, like, bubbling away mm. in the background, which is not very formed at all. I was just trying to, like, think about what my process was for it. And I think basically it always starts with like little ideas. It's always little bits of like a bit of dialogue or like a little scene that I can picture or like someone's reaction to something and I'm like, what are they reacting to? Mm. <laughs> and this is all just through like daydreaming or like I read something and I'm like, oh, that gives me an idea or whatever. Yeah. And then over time, I like collate these ideas. So when it comes to like the novel that I've mostly written, I like sat down and worked out what order all of those things <laughs> had mm. to go in, and then I like very slowly worked out what plot had to happen around them, and then like things like character and setting and all that kind of like appeared from that process. So I guess at first there was like no planning at all, but when it comes to like sitting down and being like okay now I need to write something I needed to plan out a structure Mm. so it's always been like I've written quite a loose structure for myself just putting those things in order like I said enough that I like knew what I was writing along the way but 
was enough leeway to change it if I want to. Yeah, um, so you didn't like sit and plan out all the beats of your novel bo- and then write them? No. So like some of it was already written and then I spoke about this when I kind of discovered it, but V.E. Schwab's method of the story corpse. Mm-hmm. So to simplify that like a lot, it's basically it is writing out all the beats that you want and then you like at the start of a chapter you sort of write like a little sentence and you're like this is what's going to happen mm. in this chapter so that you can like then write it so I kind of already had some stuff written but then for the bits where there was gaps I did that mm-hmm. I didn't plan for like half of it and then I planned like the other half yeah so I'm a bit of both <laughs> that's, I guess that's similar to my answer so I yeah. don't know I'd say I'm more of a pantser than a planner but I haven't yeah. finished my draft yet yeah. So, like, for my novel, I know the end, uh-huh. but I haven't decided how I'm getting there. Uh-huh. I don't know what the beats are. I don't know how many there's going to be. I just kind of write, and this is maybe, like, the poetry person in me, is that I write until I know the chapter's done. Yeah. But I don't know, like, when I start writing the chapter, I don't know what's going to happen in it. I'll know, like, a rough idea of, like, maybe one thing that's going to happen. Yeah. But I don't really know. I'm letting the writing kind of guide me the now. Yeah. A lot for me, it's like... So I said, like, oh, I'll know what my chapter's going to be. But it's more like a conversation needs to happen mm-hmm. where this line is said. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, just make something up. Just make stuff up around yeah. that. Yeah, well, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, I, need, I know that in this chapter I need to move from the house to the street. Yeah. And that's what needs to happen in this chapter. And I need this exposition of the past to happen. Yeah. But I don't know the action before I sit down that's going to get from the house to the street and how that exposition is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for poetry, though, I think that I'm a bit different because I usually do go to the page with a specific line or idea or metaphor or concept that I want to try and make. Yeah. So, for example, sometimes I'll think of a cool image that sums up an emotion, like removing your eye makeup as a metaphor for giving up hope, right? Imagine that's the image. And then I might want to write a poem around that image, and I will do that. Mm -hmm. Or I might think, you know, a poem which uses rhyme to create a flow and then interrupt it might be a cool way to tackle tradition versus modernity. I'm going to see if I can write that and I'll go to the page with that kind of plan, but I won't know what the images will be. Yeah. But the twist is that there I will often come away with something that isn't planned because I will hit on something that's better while I'm writing that. Yeah. So, yeah. I find it really hard to, like, write a plan without just writing the thing. Yeah. Like, I don't think I could sit and plan out a chapter because I'd just be writing the chapter. Yeah, I think it's good... Obviously, I don't write poetry, so I'm th- I'm thinking about a novel. I think it's good to give yourself a bit of a structure to follow, but by structure, I could mean even, like, I want to write this many words. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, I think it's good to give yourself, like, little goals to write, to keep writing, but I don't know if it's always necessary to have a plan on what the actual writing is going to be, because some of the best stuff is just like your stuff that just comes out yeah like from nothing <laughs> i think especially with a first draft maybe i'll feel differently when i'm past when i'm editing do you know yeah. what i mean but i think like 
I know that a lot of writers do plan sort of every moment before they really sit down and start drafting. Yeah. But, yeah, to me that's just not natural. Yeah, it just, just depends on the person, doesn't it? And, like, now I'm redrafting, I feel like I do more planning. But it's more like... I don't even know if I'd call it planning. It's more like checking continuity errors or mm. like do you know I, mean? I feel like I have to think more about stuff like that now which to me in my head is a bit like planning but it's not really or like I plan to sit down I'm like okay I need to edit this chapter mm-hmm. like maybe or I need to edit this and make sure that I get this point in because of yeah. x y and z or whatever see I definitely think now that I'm thinking about it because obviously my novel's still very fledgling yeah. I don't I can't really talk about that process too much but like when I'm putting together a poetry collection the first maybe like 10 poems I don't plan at all I'm just writing Mm -hmm. but then I'll look at those 10 and go like right what have I got and what's missing what directions could I take it in and if I go in those directions what would be missing and like Yeah. yeah what story yeah once I've got like maybe a third to half of the collection I'll go like right what's the story what's the narrative yeah. And then I'll plan out pieces. But again, it'll just be like as simple as, oh, I need a piece about like if it's a if it's a sort of family led collection, say, mm-hmm. and I've got like loads of pieces about female relatives, I'll be like, Oh, but I've not got that many about me and being a daughter. So, like, maybe I've got three about my mother and three about my grandmother and I've got nothing about the state of being a daughter. So I need to write something about being a daughter. I've not actually written this. So that's just how, <laughs> I would, how I would approach it. Yeah. Um, or, like, if it's love poems or whatever, I'd be like, okay, you've got one about, like, the moment of a breakup and one about the, like, feeling better after it, but you need something in between that's, like, the grieving and the chaos. Yeah. So you need that. Yeah, I suppose we're pretty similar... Yeah, um, I guess. Yeah, my my thing right now is I know that I need a bookshop scene in my novel, and I can't work out how to write it. Mm. I know that I need to write <laughs> the. Like so, the, the beginning of my novel is a death, and I know that I need to write the death scene, mm. but I can't work out how to get from, the place that I am to the death scene mm. <laughs> and I'm like I also just don't want to write it because yeah. I'm like this is gonna suck yeah but yeah it's a lot of that yeah writing <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I guess we're both both but I think we're probably closer to pantsers than planners probably what is your quickfire favorite this week my quick for our favourite is an album. Nice. It's Valley Heart by Lost Boy Crow. Lost Boy Crow, or Chris Blair, his actual name, um, is one of the guys who makes up 1990 Nowhere, which is a band that I've talked about in here before. Mm-hmm. But he also does solo music, and this album of his came out last year. Valley Heart has this like retro almost kind of California vibe it's a little bit indie it feels quite beachy mm-hmm. it feels like the kind of music you should like play in the car in summer okay um, and every song makes me think of those like fallen in love during summer movie montages yes that you see <laughs> that is the vibe and I haven't picked out like 
a specific song is a favourite because I really like listening to it all together. It's only eight songs mm. and one of them is just like a little intro one so it's not even like a real mm. song. Um, so instead I just decided to like read out a bunch of my favourite lyrics throughout a bunch of them. Go for it. So the introductory song, which is just called Intro, is like, it's very quiet, there's hardly any like instrumental at all, and it's him only speaking a few lines, and I wanted to read them out, because I think it's a very like intriguing way to start an album. And the lines are, the prettiest girl in the world without trying walked past the boy with tattoos on his heart eyes that could summon the moon without warning pulled back the coat to kill the dark Ooh. like what does that mean? but I like it <laughs> I think it means she has cold hands okay <laughs> <laughs> and then it like blasts into the titular song Valley Heart and I wanted to read the first verse out because I love how He's basically just like mashed together all of these images that don't make much sense, but like you get that like montage feeling that mm. I was talking about. So it goes, I was just thinking about you, caught up in a daydream on the moon, 99 red balloons tied to my shoe. She's a star, I'm a one hit wanderer, late night coffee, that thing you do, steal my sweatshirt, sing Mamma Mia in my living room. This valley heart wants you. Oh, It's so cute. And one hit wanderer. That's very good. It's such a good <laughs> phrase. I love it. I also just love that thing you do. Yeah. I love lines like that I where know. it feels really intimate and addressed yeah. but it can be so universal. I know. This lyric is in the song November Sleep and I just like it so I want to read it out. It's, did you see that shooting star? It fell across my mind. It could have been a spaceship, but let's take it as a sign. Aww. <laughs> and this one is in a song, Candy Wine, and you'll probably guess why I like it. It's, I don't want to be that guy who tries to say you look like the moon, but every time I see the sky at night, I swear I'm staring into you anyway. Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> We love a moon reference. I do. And then finally, I just wanted to end on this lyric from the song Strawberry Sunscreen that I like. It's, don't really care if it rains or it shines, I'm still stuck inside the treasure chest centre of both of your eyes. Oh. Treasure chest centre. That's a good, I like the sound of that. He has lots of good sounding Mm. lyrics. Um... So yeah, that's it. It's a really good album. <laughs> that Shooting Star one reminds me of Chinese Satellite by Phoebe Bridgers. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's a good tour to see the stars, but they weren't out, so I wished hard on a Chinese Satellite. Yep. <laughs> Love that. What is your quickfire favourite? Mine is also an album. Oh, nice. Um, it's Rookery by Giant Rooks, which is weird because we both have crow themes. Oh, our- yeah. So they are an indie rock outfit from Germany. They do the version of Tom's Diner, which is trending on TikTok just now, which is the song that's like... But it's like a man singing it. Um, So it's like a different guy and they're featured on that, which is how I found them. So yeah, that's actually a song by Suzanne Vega, who I also love, but (laughs) that's separate. 
So yeah, Rookery came out in 2020 and first of all, I just think that Rookery's a cool name for an album. Mm-hmm. It's sort of dystopian alt-rock, like it's very end of the world but love songs and like a slam and bass line in all of them. Nice. And honestly, for once, I don't have a lot to say about the lyrics because a lot of the time, I think because they have really thick German accents, even though they're singing in English, I haven't really been paying attention to what they're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, the lyrics, when I've looked them up, are really good, but they don't stick out to me. Mm-hmm. It's just... Just every song absolutely slaps. Mm-hmm. Like, the bass and the drums are so satisfying. It's really upbeat. There's one song that I particularly love called Very Soon You'll See... And it's about kind of wanting to be away from someone, but still being with them, not really knowing what you want. It's mm. very boy vibes, mm. where they're like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I feel bad about it, but whatever. And a cool feature of this album is that the bridge of that song is Rain Falls Slows Down, I Need Your Love. And that's picked up in the next track, which like those two tracks are my favourite run of the of the album and the next track is just called Rainfalls Mm. and it's this really slow acoustic meditative track Mm -hmm. where the line rain falls slowly I've been watching it for ages now ages now just repeats and repeats so it's like you go from this really like tortured uh loud track to that yeah um and I love it I love when tracks on the same album talk back to each other. Yeah. Um, And I picked out one other lyric from Very Soon You'll See, which is, I could be alone with me, I could drive to the sea. Um, (laughs) Which I just think is relatable. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I would really recommend it. I think you would like them. For once I'm listening to like a man band, so. They sound like a band I would like. Yeah. I do. It is cheating a little bit, but for my root, I thought I would just explain a little bit more about the title of the album Rookery, because uh-huh. I think it's cool. So as I said, for all that the sound is quite upbeat and rocky, the tone and the lyrics are very disillusioned, and you get the feeling of like an urban dystopia. Mm-hmm. So obviously, the etymology of rook, which of course is a word for a crow, comes from Middle English roke. It comes from the Proto-Germanic krokas. Which I thought was cool because Kaz, Kaz Brecker. <gasps> Lee Bardugo's a genius. <laughs> it's also the source of the Old Norse hrokar. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many good words for this. The Swedish roka and the Old High German hro, crow. The thought is that all of these come from the imitation of the voice of a crow. Oh. So, because if you compare... The Gaelic rock, that means croak. Mm. So like croak, croak. And the Sanskrit, croak means to cry out. So there you go. Oh. Crows just influencing all of human language. So it's used as a... Rook was used as a disparaging term since at least 1500. And it was extended by the 1570s to mean a cheat, especially at cards or dice. So like the idea of the trickster and the crow. Is that where crook comes from? I then? think so. I see. But colloquially, now a rookery is also a term for like a slum or a ghetto. Oh. So 
like it originated because of the perceived similarities between a city slum and the nesting habits of the rook, which is different from the nesting habits of just a crow. Rooks nest together in big noisy colonies um, and they're often untidily crammed into close treetops. Right. So it's a rookery. Mm -hmm. So I just think that the album being called Rookery, obviously the band is called Giant Rooks, so like they're giant tricksters. Yeah. Rookery is like this sonic dystopia (laughs) landscape. (laughs) I just, the whole concept goes together so well and I just really appreciate it. Nice. What is your insight for us? You can tell when I'm struggling for an insight when we end up back at Erin Morgenstern's Flax Golden Tales. Always here for it. We've got another one. So yeah, these are her 10 sentence short stories inspired by different photographs. But what I did do to theme it a little is find a Flax Golden Tale that has like an element from Once Upon a Broken Heart. Okay. So this one is called Mind the Bell. Oh, yay! (laughs) They used to say Mind the Bell mostly as a... What's the opposite of a greeting? They'd say it when bidding farewell to someone, sometimes turning it into a single word. Mind the bell, or mind the bell. Nobody does it as much anymore, but teachers still say it at the end of class because their teachers said it and their teachers before them. I asked once what it meant and was told it was a shortened version of be mindful of the bell, but when I asked why we needed to be mindful of the bell, no one could give me an answer. They'd point at the old bell tower with its perpetually silent bell and shrug. My grandmother told me once that if it rings I should run as fast as I can, but my father says grandma doesn't always make the most sense. I know someone who tried to climb the bell tower once on a dare, but he only got about halfway up the beams before he couldn't find any more footholds and had to go back down. He told me he got high enough to see the bell properly, but as far as he could tell it didn't have a rope or anything to ring it, so the whole minding thing was probably just an expression. But this morning it started ringing and I was the only one who ran. So I was the only one who got away. (gasps) Oh, I just got a chill. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Oh, Oh, like I got goosebumps over my whole body there. It's so creepy. That is so creepy. That reminds me of, there's a bell tower in Dubrovnik Mm -hmm. and the bell does go like the bell does ring Mm -hmm. quite a lot because they they love a church service (laughs) um but oh god what was it that we were told we were told something about the bell tower and I think it fell down at one point that Mm. could be wrong but there's like a weird story that goes with the bell tower in Dubrovnik so like people should just google that and I'm sure you'll find (laughs) it but when it's such a small city and obviously it's walled Mm-hmm. that anywhere you are in the city you can mm-hmm. see the bell not just the tower you can see the bell oh. just about anywhere I can't think of a single place that I was where I looked up and couldn't see the bell mm. and that gives me big mind the bell vibes <laughs> so that is us I think I've talked more in this episode than I've talked all week <laughs> maybe <laughs> If you have any comments or questions in our email, it's infatuatepodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes along with everything we talked about today. And it's looking so nice. <laughs> it is. 
<laughs> We've done so much work on it. Please appreciate Please it. Please come and like our Instagram posts because we have worked hard. And yeah, the Infatuated Mix is also in there, which has all the music we mention. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there. And even if your friends don't listen to us, tell them to do it too. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> okay, right. see you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye.